With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Chef Ariel Fox has worked in and led some of the most renowned kitchens in the country. SDK, Hardings, Acme, and Los Caminos. That success is not surprising. Ariel knew very young that she wanted to be a chef, and her performance in culinary school proved that she was exactly where she was meant to be. We talk about her approach to being a contestant on Hell's Kitchen, celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay, her unique perspective on food's authenticity, and the inspiration for her new cookbook, Spice Kitchen, Healthy Latin and Caribbean Cuisine. Ariel, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Where am I talking to you today? <laughs> I am actually in an office at one of my restaurants in New York City, and we are launching a new menu today. So it is a, a busy, busy day for me. Okay, that explains so much both about why you are in your gear, uh, why you were 10 minutes early for this interview, which nobody ever is. So thank you so much. I want to go back, though, and start at the beginning because your family is not Mexican, but you grow up in a Mexican community and surrounded by Mexican cuisine. Take me back to growing up, what what your family was like, what your parents were like, and the influence of growing up somewhere where you're not actually in the majority culture. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty wild. So I grew up in Santa Cruz, but I went to school in Watsonville, which is where my mom taught and she's a bilingual teacher. She's been studying Spanish for many, many years. And Watsonville is a farm working town. I mean, it's right in the heart of where a lot of the produce that this country eats comes from that part of California. 
And there's a lot of migrant workers. I mean, the school I went to in Watsonville was probably 90% a Mexican community. So in a way, I mean, I never felt like I was out of place or didn't belong, even though I come from a super mixed background, just none of it happens to be actually Mexican. It just felt like the norm to me in every way, shape or form. I mean, when I would go to my friends' houses and spend the night, I mean, I was just completely surrounded by the most amazing, authentic Mexican cuisine. I actually felt more out of place when I when I left that town because I felt like that community that I had been so, so immersed in, you know, I missed it. And, and I don't think it ever left me, obviously. <laughs> when you say super mixed background, what did that look like? So my father is Afro-Colombian and from an island that is off the coast of Colombia in the Caribbean. So it's very much Caribbean influence. His family lineage was brought over during spice trading. And so that's that's my father's side. And then my bio father's side. And then my mother is Irish and German. And then I have a stepfather who's black from Jersey. So I just kind of <laughs> have a very strong connection to many different roots. So much of your mythology really is grounded in that time in Watsonville, not just those years growing up in a rich Mexican community, but also the time you spent at a small farm there as a teen. What was the work that you were doing? And how did it begin to shape how you thought about food? It was called Mariquita Farms, and it was really one of the first organic farms in the slow food organic movement in the Bay Area. And, you know, I mean, I wasn't like heavily farming, but I was definitely, <laughs> I was definitely packing vegetables to bring up to the San Francisco farmer's market. So I would work the farmer's market on the weekends. So we would load the trucks and we would drive up to San Francisco. So that was really interesting because this was kind of before everyone was like talking about farm to table. But that also then gives you exposure as a very young person to some titans of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of our biggest clients was Alice Waters and a bunch of San Francisco names. You had chefs coming all over from Berkeley, Sacramento, San Francisco coming over and, and supplying their restaurants. And we actually had the opportunity to go and eat in these restaurants too. And I didn't even realize that was such a privilege at the time because the chefs all loved their farmers, right? So they would invite them in and Anyone working on the farms got to do stages or internships at those restaurants. So it was very, very cool to be in that world. I mean, stages, does it mean staging? Is that like, is that what, what Yeah, it mean? I mean, that's the French word. It's basically like you're, you're doing a stage, you're pulling a shift. So you basically get to come in and, and work for a day. Do you remember what the biggest surprise of that experience was, of being invited into someone else's world? Seeing... The machine that it was like such a beautiful process from the first person who arrives that day to when it's time for service. And it's almost like we're opening our doors, like the pre-shift. I mean, it was very magical to see, you know, the prep happening and the line being set up and the fire being stoked and like everything, all the equipment being turned on and then the servers all gathering. And it was like an orchestra of people. And then it, and it's like that moment when it's like, 
okay, we're open for service. I can't really describe it. I mean, I just feel like it was, it was just magic happening. And it was, it was a different time, I think, in the business for sure. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. You decide to go to culinary school and you're going to forgive me because my French is so bad that I'm going to ask you to say the name of your culinary program. So I went to the Cordon Bleu, uh, which is the California School of Culinary Arts. And what was the biggest learning curve? I just remember that was where I really learned that I was kind of competing against the people next to me, right? You would have a chef instructor who would do a demonstration it was very intense. You'd only get to see it once and he would talk really fast and you'd be taking notes and it's like the sauce and the this and the, you know, and then it was like, he would go and everyone would have their tray of their ingredients. And it was like, you had to duplicate this masterpiece that you just saw one time. And it was about the, I would challenge myself to get it as close as possible to what that chef produce every step of the way from the knife cut to the brunoise on the vegetable to the, the gloss on the sauce to the julienne on the garnish and all of that and then we would all it was that moment where we would all put our plates up and I would try and like not look at the person next to me and, and compare but I mean that was really what it was all about like who really got it as close to the chef instructor and then I did very well I was always you know one of the top one or two students in the class so I realized I was where I was supposed to be. As I understand it, you spend the early part of your career in Los Angeles. And in addition to all of the stodging, as we've talked about, it is also a different time in that it's pre-Me Too. 
And the reckoning that has happened in every industry has not yet happened in full in your industry. And, and I've heard you say, I, I've pu- I put up with more than I should have. And I wonder what that looked like and, and if you think it's different today. I think that there is more awareness today. I think that then I just remember that the norm was to joke about sex. You know, it was a common thing in the kitchen, that dirty jokes. I mean, every chef, you know, had a reputation. It was like, it's, this is what we do. We make dirty jokes in the kitchen. And, and as the female, you're maybe the only one. Maybe there's two. There are a lot more savory women chefs now, but back then I think a lot more women were in the pastry path. And, you know, it was just inappropriate comments all the time in the walk-in, you know, vegetables that are shaped like, you know, (laughs) body parts and joking about the size of it. And just, you know, a lot of totally, like at the time I didn't realize that I don't have to listen to that while I'm working. I'm trying to focus on my job. So I don't know if it's a hundred percent different now, but I just know, you know, where I work now, we don't, we don't really allow that kind of talk. And if we see it, we stop it. And I think that's the thing is that now there's the, if you see it, you do have to say something. That's the difference now. Take me back to your decision to move to New York. What, what was the thinking and the thought process behind that decision? I had reached the ceiling with the company I, or in that location. And, you know, I really wanted to move up to oversee more than one unit. That was sort of my moment when I realized I liked corporate, the corporate world as well. I've been able to oversee multiple and the company I worked for that was, that opened STK in LA, they, their main office was in New York. So they basically said, you have what it takes, but you know, you have to move out to where we operate. And so I was getting out of a relationship. I had just filmed the first time that I was on Hell's Kitchen and it was about to air. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get out of Dodge. So yeah, I mean, it was just, it was time. It was like, did my time in LA and I was ready for the, I guess, the big leagues. In the course of those years, there is a lot of launching, launching of restaurants, launching of new menus. Can you choose one of those launches and what it is that you've learned over the course of time about what a successful launch looks like? I mean, the first one that comes to mind absolutely has to be when I launched Acme. I left corporate for a little while to do a passion project with one of the chefs from Noma. And at the time they had been best restaurant in the world for nine years in a row. So it was like, he chose me of all the people in New York, he chose me to be his chef de cuisine. So the pressure of that opening was probably the most pressure I've ever had in my life to perform. And the level of food that we were executing, I had never done foraging type of food to, you know, just all the things I'd learned from, you know, working in busy high volume restaurants. I just had never done that level of execution. I mean, we had a full brigade. It was all eyes on us. You know, we're going after the stars in the New York Times we wanted the two and we got the two. And when we got those two stars, it was such a moment. Like I, you know, I can't even explain it. It was like such a moment of accomplishment. But I think what that opening taught me was just, I got to work at a level of excellence that not all 
places will afford or give you the budget for. I'm very good at running at any level of budget, but what that, you know, I, that was the one time in my life where I got to perform at a level of excellence that, that kind of like there wasn't really a dollar cap on it. And I don't think I'll ever have that opportunity again, <laughs> but I got to learn how to be excellent. Uh, and I now apply that in every opening that I do, regardless of the opening budget that we have or what we're trying to hit. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. As you said, you do one season of Hell's Kitchen and then you return and compete again. I wonder, especially for someone who's pretty established, what you see as the value of those reality show competition shows when it comes to people in the food industry. I mean, the first time I didn't question it because I was still coming up and it was like, okay, this is appropriate. And, you know, I came in third. I was disappointed didn't think I pushed myself hard enough. And I told myself if they ever asked me to come back, I will, because I want to come back and win because I realize now what it takes. And I definitely had to think about it a lot when they did call 10 years later, because, you know, there's the thought going to your head, like I'm already doing really well. What if I perform poorly? And now it's on live television and I have all these people that report to me and respect me. I've earned my respect, not because of television. You know, I've, I've worked my way up and I don't want to undermine what I've done in my life by now, you know, maybe looking like a total clown on TV because you have no control over how they edit you. And yes, you are not a Kardashian. You do not have <laughs> final edit. So I just, I think though that because I had so much to think about going into it, I think that I was so careful all the time when I came back. And a lot of people said that about me. They're like, you never said anything like too crazy or, you know, I just, I felt like there was a lot on the line and it wasn't that. <laughs> there was a lot on the line in my real life that was so much more important, not to undermine the show, but there was just so much more important things to me outside that I wanted to make sure that I represented myself well. And I actually embraced it as an opportunity to do that, to come back and represent myself well for the women in the field and certainly came in and was going to win. And that's what I did. I love that energy. I was just, I came in to win. I did. That, I did. that was not going, that was not a question. <laughs> You're out with a brand new cookbook, Spice Kitchen, Healthy Latin and Caribbean Cuisine, part of the impetus for Spice Kitchen, your own decision to change your lifestyle, learn about nutrition. What was it that inspired that change? Honestly, it was it was not so much. I mean, people assume it's about being skinny and fit, but it was actually more about being tired all the time. And I worked my way up the ladder, you, you kind of, you work a little less physically, but the mental strain is much more intense. There's certainly very blurred lines on schedule, you know, when you're on and when you're off, because it's really all the time. And that's a choice. That's nobody's forcing that. It's however serious you take your job. That's the amount of effort you put in. And mine just happens to be very 
much all the time. If I'm available, I'm available. And I needed to really kind of figure out how to overcome just being tired or just mood. There's a lot of things that you can do to hack your own body and figure out how to have more mental clarity and to have more energy and to have a better mood just by what you eat. But a lot of the books out there and stuff out there for this type of shift in lifestyle is a little, I don't want to say one dimensional, but I felt like I wanted to represent these flavors and this, these types of food and be able to kind of merge that space of, of flavor and, and health. You also have a really interesting take on something that I've just been thinking about since I read you speaking about this, which is this bristling at the idea of authenticity. Like, What is authentic Mexican cuisine? What is authentic Cuban or Colombian cuisine? That there's, you know, in your world, there are folks who put a lot of emphasis on that. And I'm really into how you reject that. And I wonder if that's something you came to over time or if there was a moment where it became clear to you. There was a, a moment of a few years back where that word was just everywhere. I don't remember exactly when, but it's just everything was authentic, authentic. And it was like, there's a lot of things that I relate to that are important to me that I'm not Mexican. I'm not Puerto Rican. I'm not Dominican. I'm not Jamaican, but I'm also not French. I'm not Italian. You know, all these things that I feel very passionate about in my cooking. And there was a kind of a time or a question where it was like, well, you can't really cook authentically if you're not from there. And I kind of got a little bit shy and intimidated by some of the foods for a while. And I really was not okay with that. And needed to say, okay, no, I'm not any of those things, but I use things from all of these. I mean, I'm French trained. I, I, you know, I, I learned it's not fair. It was kind of like, a, this is a not fair moment. And I'm really good at working with these things and using these techniques. And I think the authenticity is, is comes from, you have to love it and you have to cherish it. And if you are trying to incorporate something from a place of love and positivity, then that's, that's all you need. And so I kind of, that's the moment when I rejected it and said, you know what, I'm not any, I'm not those things. I mean, I don't come from those places, but I'm absolutely using authentic ingredients, authentic techniques, and that's okay. It was kind of like, I'm allowed to be in this space and you guys are going to let me be there. <laughs> Reclaiming it for yourself. My final question for you, Ariel, is you are now a mom and I wonder, are you making like eight course meals or is your kid getting the same frozen pizza that my kid's getting? Yeah. So, well, when my daughter, when my, I have a stepdaughter who's going to be nine and she went through this phase when, you know, I met her, she was three and she was very picky and I said, oh, I'm not going to let, when I have my baby, that's not going to happen. And my daughter, Charlotte, she ate everything when she was a baby. And then she turned two and a half and we went into the zone, the toddler zone. And you know what? Her favorite foods are mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, pizza, rice, you know. So I'm battling it. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to introduce things 
when I can, I make healthier versions of it. You know, when I can sneak it in, she doesn't realize. I told myself too that I would never make two different meals because that's just not cool. Like, but you know what? I'm not eating chicken nuggets and pizza. So guess what? Right now in my house, I've got two different meals and I'm going to get out of that as soon as I can. But for now, that's what works for us. I feed the kids and then I feed my husband and myself. Ariel, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. It was a joy. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua and me, Alicia Menendez. Helena Velasco is our producer. Manuela Bedoya is our marketing lead. Kojin Tashiro is our associate sound designer and mix this episode. We love hearing from you. It makes our day. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Slide into our DMs on Instagram. Tweet us at latinatolatina. Check out our merchandise that is on our website, latinatolatina.com slash shop. And remember, please subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, wherever you are listening right now. Every time you share this podcast, every time you share an episode, every time you leave a review, it helps us to grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. 